Hey, it's Game Taken Podcast. Welcome to episode 10, part 2. I'm your host, Michael Marshall. Each week, I celebrate the unique stories and shared Michael Marshall experiences of another Michael Marshall somewhere else in the world. I'm going to skip a lengthy introduction of Mike, since you can catch that setup in part 1. If you haven't already, check out part 1 of this interview. Part 1 focuses more on genealogy and how Mike Marshall became a Marshall in the first place. In part two, we focus on music making. Mike has been recording across genres and touring as a mandolinist and mandocellist for about 50 years now. We fully explore Mike's musical career and philosophies. We more deeply reflect on how the tradition of mandolin playing has changed since the 1980s and the part people like Mike have played in introducing the instrument to mainstream audiences. So without further ado, Here's episode 10, part two, with mandolinist Mike Marshall. I mean, first of all, I love having such a better understanding here of like how the mandolin is such a central part of like all these different kind of disparate parts of your identity. I think it's such a a, a wonderful and poetic thing. Um, I want to go back to something kind of you've, you've hinted at and you also use the word lineage. So I've got this setup here that you've, you know, performed with with so many different people um like chris thiele uh who was my the first mandolinist i i encountered when he was performing with nickel creek um but also with bella fleck and edgar meyer right uh in the 80s i think i found out you performed with uh stefan grappelli who was like one of the most pivotal figures in the 1930s french jazz scene with Django reinhardt um yeah you my first real gig yeah so I had this teenage bluegrass band and, you know, in the, as teenagers in high school, and then I got deep into the music that was happening at that time. And that was a very rich time of new people bringing new things to bluegrass. Mm-hmm. Um, David Grisman and Sam Bush and these people from the urban centers who were influenced by a lot of other music but loved acoustic and traditional American music. Sure. Pushing the boundaries. And so David Grisman had this incredible group in California. I was a huge fan. I learned all their music from their records. Tony Rice was a guitarist. And Tony knew me and said, there's this young hot kid in Florida. So I just contacted those guys because I was going out there. And they said, hey, come and see us. Let's play. And so... I got to meet basically my heroes and the most, it was the most pivotal band for acoustic music at that time. And David was doing a soundtrack to a movie, King of the Gypsies. And uh, he had written this score and he hired Stefan Grappelli to play the violin for the soundtrack. And um, so they were in the middle of doing that when I arrived. And so he, he had tendonitis real bad, David. And he said, hey, man, why don't you come to L.A. with us and play all the rhythm parts on this thing <laughs> with Stefan? <laughs> no so problem. Within a week arriving in California, I was thrust into this insane scene with, you know, my heroes, Stefan Grappelli, who, yeah, I mean, I feel the same way you do about him. I mean, this is a guy who was playing with Django in the 30s. Are you kidding right. me? and embodied the entire 20th century of music and, and history in his in his soul that's who he was he france and england 
the wars. I mean, it's insane. He was hanging out with Picasso as a teenager in Montmartre. You know, all the dancers, Stravinsky doing Rite of Spring. I mean, he grew up with all that shit. <laughs> I was. I was 19 years old playing with this guy and touring. And then we went on the road, went all of Europe. My first trip to Europe, Stefan. How ridiculous. does it? Yeah, ridiculous indeed. I mean, how, when you stop and reflect now, not just on that, but in the ensuing decades where you've performed with like all these wonderful people, I mean, you've had an opportunity to uh, contribute to and advance some pretty important Western musical tr traditions, right? Like, uh, how does it feel to reflect on, you know, where you're standing in relation to some of these really rich musical legacies that you've become a part of? Well, I, you know, I've always saw myself as somebody who was thinking progressively about the music. And, but I stand on the shoulders of this great tradition, you know, and I've, I think it's our responsibility as musicians to, if we're going to push forward, we also have to reach back and almost with equal force. And I, I've studied the traditions, not only of bluegrass, but also classical music as much as I can and the tradition of the instruments. And, and uh, I just, I mean, I owe it to the people who came before me who were all progressive. Bill Monroe was the most progressive. Mm -hmm. Earl Scruggs, nobody played the banjo like Earl Scruggs until he came along. And now we think of bluegrass as traditional music, which is absurd because at its time of invention, it was as wild and crazy and intense as anything anybody's, as Nickel Creek or anything anybody's doing today. Sure. And so you have to understand these things and and a natural uh, what musicians do, you know, they learn from the generation before them, and then they want to create their own identity. And that's all I always saw myself as as, as being uh, somebody who could, like, especially uh, getting back to your idea of the mandolin. I think because it hadn't been developed a lot, mm -hmm. that's kind of what drew me to it. It felt like there was a lot of potential to make something new with this instrument. It hadn't been done before. Whereas if you look at the guitar in the, the 20th century and the jazz guitar and classical guitar and rock guitar, and I mean, there's just all this guitar, guitar, guitar was pretty well developed by the time you get to the 70s. And so I always felt like, well, I could find my own voice on this instrument. I mean, I play guitar, fiddle, and all those string instruments. But uh, mandolin was always central to me, maybe because it was like the the little brother who could somehow keep up with the big boys and show his own later. Well, that's that's something that's interesting about the mandolin. Um, I mean, I've, I've noticed, I mean, on your first album, The Duo, you're playing um, bluegrass tunes, but you're also doing like Charlie Parker charts. Um, yeah. You're doing, and for, for my audience that isn't, familiar with jazz you're doing donna lee which is like a pretty mean charlie parker bebop head that is not an easy tune to play in any key uh but uh <laughs> that's not a yeah. friendly man <laughs> well 
Well, there's this interesting, and I think it's kind of what you said that um, I want to know more about this philosophy and the versatility of, of the mandolin, because even at the beginning of your career, you're using the mandolin as this tool to access all of these different traditions and genres of music. There's like the jazz, um, but you're also doing Bach fugues and you're kind of rebooting, you know, violin partitas as mandolin pieces, um, you know, modern yeah. classical compositions, bluegrass jams. So what makes the the mandolin so versatile? Because we haven't even gotten to like Led Zeppelin tunes, you know, like <laughs> the Battle of Evermore or, uh, you know, uh, Losing My Religion, right? Okay which also has a mandolin in it. So it, it, why why is it everywhere? And why is it so versatile and accessible? Well, maybe because of the pitch, you know, that it is pitched high. And so when you have guitars and basses and pianos and, and you stick a mandolin in there, there is a place for it sonically in many different uh, instrumental setups. Um, the problem with the mandolin if you go back to earlier times before the microphone, was that it was just too quiet. Uh, but now, of course, we can balance those things with, sure. with modern miking and recording techniques and even live with drums. You know, if you put a pickup on, you can. So I think that's part of what, um, that's part of it. You know, I think that, the, you know, I'm part of a big group of musicians uh, beginning in the 70s who, who wanted to see bluegrass instruments um, taken to a new place. And part of that was composition, but it was also all of us were studying jazz, maybe because of the Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli connection. There's a natural affinity for bluegrass musicians to love that music because it's got this folk gypsy root to it. They were playing acoustic. Um, so there, there was a real connection for many of us. And I think those re records were getting reissued at that time. And so uh, we said, oh, Django and Stefan, these swing tunes. Oh, why not bebop also? You know, if you're going to learn this early swing stuff, that leads naturally to bebop, which leads sure. naturally to Coltrane. When I joined. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I do remember like Round Midnight and some other tunes that you've done. Yeah. Too, so. So yeah. And all that. And we were sure. There was, a, you know, the real book, right? Oh, yeah. So that was just published illegally right around that time, mm -hmm. early 70s, mid 70s. And we all had copies of it. So we were like going through it. You know, that was our study. You know, you couldn't study as a, as a musician now who plays bluegrass and banjo and fiddle. You can go to Berklee School of Music because they have a roots music program. Mm -hmm. And so most kids these days do. And there's a whole scene separate from the jazz division of these you know, acoustic pickers. You couldn't do that in 1975, 78. You just, sorry, we don't take mandolin. <laughs> so we had to do it ourselves. You know, we just studied the music. Um, there, Jamie Abersall and... Um, uh, David Baker were yeah, remember those camps in California at Stanford mm -hmm. and Daryl and I never I would just went down and visited one day but Daryl Anger was taking the classes and Dave Balakrishna the great violinist they started the Turtle Island String Quartet which is a, a first jazz string quartet so we all had these wacky ideas like could you play jazz on a string quartet <laughs> like 
Well, Mark Summer, this great cellist, shows up and he can walk the cello like a bass. You know, they put a That's pickup it. on it, got a little more low end, and he could do all these funky grooves and stuff. So, yes, you can do a jazz and a string quartet. You couldn't before that, but now it's almost considered like normal. But sure, in those days, we were just smoking a lot of weed and having some crazy ideas, you know, like, let's go for it. And, and shit happens if you're. 20 years old and don't have any other responsibilities and got a lot of time. Daryl <laughs> Anger and I lived next door to each other. So we just played music. His wife was a piano player. We just, we lived, ate and drank music 24 uh, seven. This was before the ATM. I can remember trying to wake up before the bank closed. That was a, <laughs> often a, <laughs> <laughs> or the post office. <laughs> so we lived at night and we just ah, complete immersion into is this possible? You know, Tony Rice was there playing. We were playing with the quintet. All he listened to was Coltrane and Miles and mm. McCoy Tyner and so on. This those were his. And here's this guy who's the iconic bluegrass guitarist of all time. Played with J.D. Crow and all these guys, but he loved jazz. So he was writing his tunes, kind of inspired by that. And um, classical music's always been a part of my studying, you know, but I always saw it as a study thing. There was no place for it with the mandolin mm-hmm. until I met, you know, I mean, I, I did the partita and I've, I've, we did some arrangements of some classical pieces, but you couldn't go join a symphony or or there was no place for it in the world of classical music at that time. So you carve it out. You know, I started a mandolin quartet because I bought this mando cello from a great builder. I was wondering where that happened. Yeah. Okay. An amazing instrument. I mean, we were always dealing with luthiers too, kind of pushing the, the instruments building themselves and like, Hey man, why not build me a mando cello? You know, these old Gibsons were kind of hard to play from the team. So he built me this like thick, I don't know if you know John Monteleone. You can check him out. I don't, but I can they look at the, at the Met on his instrument building. It's, in fact, it's a lineage of Italian mandolin and guitar builders in America. And he was part of that. He's one of the top luthiers in the world. So he built me this hoss of a mando cello, and I was like, at that point, the light bulb went off. Well, God, you can have a mandolin quartet. You know, you got a mando cello that can hold the bottom, and they got a mandola for the viola parts, and then two mandolins. So I went off down that rabbit hole, started a group. We actually made a living for like 10 years as a mandolin quartet. (laughs) I can imagine, like, the world having room for one. But, yeah, Yeah. I can imagine... (laughs) I can well, imagine it working. It was because we'd go and we'd be like, there'd be this chamber music series, you know? Right. And they'd hire us one year. The next year, they'd hire a sax quartet or or the Turtle Island Quartet. The jazz violin quartet would be acceptable for one night. So anyway, it, it's interesting because, you know, you can choose as a musician or an artist, any kind of artist, to fit yourself into a, a world. Mm-hmm. Or you can push at that and see if it's possible to expand out beyond what 
exists. And um, there are some musicians who choose to do this thing which exists, and there's others who want to push at it. I've always been one that wanted to see what else was possible and and discover all these different worlds. And, you know, it's, it's funny because the mandolin, this goofy little instrument, has enabled me to travel all over the world and discover all these different musics, you know, my whole Brazilian fetish with Choro music. You know. I saw a little bit of that. Yeah. That, that's a whole nother world. And to realize that these Italians brought their instruments to Italy and Venezuela and Colombia. And now there are mandolin traditions in each of those countries. So, and then also because of the mandolin, you uh, got married and have a family. Yeah. <laughs> That's very <really> sick. <laughs> and um I mean you you and your wife uh perform and record together. How okay, so how do you to how do you challenge each other as experts on the same instrument and the flip side of that is do you have wisdom to share about communication and conflict resolution within relationships? As two people who are experts in the same thing. Mm, wow. Well, we're 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 it's it's provided us with this beautiful connection point. Obviously, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous that we both play the mandolin, but we also we have our tor- our turfs mapped out really clearly. You know, I mean, she's a classical mandolinist, and I'm improvising crazy uh, American bluegrass, whatever. Uh, And so basically we've helped each other. You know, we see it as, um, you know, this great opportunity to share these worlds and just be open to, like I've changed my whole right-hand technique since meeting her. Interesting. And how I approach getting a tone and and, um, certainly learning to play Bach. And I knew something about Bach. And, and Baroque music interpretation, but nothing compared to what I've learned from being with her. So there's just this tremendous amount of respect on both sides. I think she would probably say the same about, you know, when we play a groove and I'm trying to play some tune, she'll say, oh, God, I sound like some classical white girl. You know, this is ridiculous. You know? <laughs> so she's, she's aware of her tendencies. I'm aware of mine. And so there's just tremendous amount of respect there and and we just um we get through it pretty well but i think i think the of course you're gonna have conflicts you know but uh i think we realize how good we have it uh do you want to start a band because yeah right we can have (laughs) there you go yeah i'm sure we could find a drummer for my mandolin Mike Marshall, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Michael Marshall. It's been a pleasure. It's been wacky and weird uh, concept, but I appreciate your energy and you going for it and coming up with this idea. I look forward to meeting more of you. Cheers. <laughs> me too. <laughs> and that's it for episode 10 in full. Thanks to Mike Marshall for fighting his instincts that this was a scam and exploring our Namekin community with me. Of course, thanks to Miles Kalchik once again for my intro and outro jams. Next week, I share an interview I conducted with LA-based rap battle and rave photographer, Michael Marshall. 
All right, well, if you or someone you know is a Michael Marshall, or if you just have a common name, reach out and share your story. Thanks.